0: congregation of the Lord, we do very well to remember that the test of the genuineness of our Christianity may be discovered by how we relate to others. We must be most careful, you see, not to fall into the trap of so many religious people who imagine themselves to be pious, and upright, all the while harboring hatred and ungodliness to their neighbor. Was that not the great rebuke and challenge that Jesus Christ himself gave to the Pharisees' religion? He said, you tithe the mint and the rue and all manner of herbs, but pass over judgment. And the love of God. You rob. Widows and orphans. And you lay heavy burdens on. The people that none. Should bear. While not even lift, lifting a finger. In true. Godliness. So it is. Also. In Jesus's warnings. To his disciples. The Genuineness of their profession would be uh, evidenced in their conduct towards especially their fellow confessing Christians. We read, didn't we there in uh, Matthew chapter 18 that whosoever would offend one of these little ones that believes on me, speaking Of his precious people. Of Christians. Were better for him. That a heavy millstone were. Put around his neck. And that he were drowned. In the depth of the sea. There's a terrible. Terrible potential. For us to measure. Our Christianity. By something other. Than the practical outworking. Of. Our lives in relation to others and to imagine that if we have high thoughts of spiritual things, as in our own estimation, that can excuse or cover over our conduct towards others, which is ungodly. So it was that this was a problem also in the early church. And the apostle Peter seeks to counteract that at the beginning of chapter 2 of his epistle. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow there by. However it was, the apostle may have heard that this was a problem for those congregations of believers there in Asia Minor, that there was gossip, that there was anger, that there was malice and hatred among even confessing Christians. How terrible it is to contemplate sin and In the camp. Sin among the confessing people of God. How it robs the church of its witness in this dark world. How it grieves the Holy Spirit. How it dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ as our head and king. When such things exist among his people. Listen to what Matthew Henry writes about this passage. Our best services toward God will neither please him nor profit us if we be not conscientious in our duties to men. The sins here mentioned are offenses against the second table. These must be laid aside or else we cannot receive the word of God as we ought to. You see there, these two things are juxtaposed, put in opposition. On the one hand, there is the sins of unbrotherly hatred and lack of love among the church. On the other, there is the right receiving of the word of God and spiritual growth. That is the basic thought here, that the antidote and the correction that is needed when such things creep into our lives, our families, our churches, is that there must be a mighty work of the Lord to bring us unto ourselves to the true heart of what it is to be a follower of Christ in subjection to his will. Whatever sins that may be found on our account as we come here this morning, whether they be these or others, I hope that our hearts are attuned to this, the great need for spiritual growth. That is what we come to when we look at verse 2. In a way, it is, not really introducing much new from what we've been considering in detail from 1 Peter chapter 1, where the second half of that chapter was devoted to this great theme of holiness and repentance and obedience through the grace of God working in us. But now it introduces that theme under this picture of spiritual growth. So important is this that I uh, hope with the Lord's help to uh, devote at least two sermons to this theme from this text of spiritual growth. And in the morning, I will be discussing the potential, the potential for spiritual growth that is in this passage. And in the afternoon, we will consider the nurture, the nurture of the spiritual growth. But first, let us describe this potential for spiritual growth. You know, it was interesting reading these two passages in juxtaposition. How it was that the Apostle Peter had gone through turmoil among his fellow disciples in those days in which he was following the Lord Jesus Christ in that wonderful school for his later ministry. I wonder if he had time to reflect upon that in the years that followed, how it was that he and the other disciples were reduced to this, arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Among the church, there was jostling for position, jostling for prestige, There was the seeking to elevate themselves and tear down others to set up, as it were, a hierarchy among the family of God. And Jesus, you see, puts them all to shame and says, except ye be converted and become as a little child, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Even brings a little young child before him and sets him before them as the picture of what it is to be a Christian. And is there not a great similarity in the text that is before us, as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. We have here... The teaching of spiritual growth. That the Christian is to grow in the graces that they have attained. That the holiness that they seek after, that they yearn for, that they desire is to be worked in them through a maturing, through a growing into the image and likeness of the Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. And it is not unique, of course, to this passage in particular. Peter speaks as well about this in his second epistle, most clearly in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But it's also found in the Old Testament scriptures, you see. There is that wonderful uh, Psalm 84, where we read about the true saints of God. In verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. And then in verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them In Zion appearing before God. Strength to strength grow in grace. There's an advancement, there's a change in the direction of the ways of God. So, likewise, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, and verse 18, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more. Unto the perfect day. More and more. Shining forth. In the character of true godliness. As partakers of genuine grace. Well examples could be multiplied. Let me just give you once one more. In Ephesians chapter 4. Where this is set forth as a genuine mark. Of union in communion with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 and verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, cunning craftiness, whereby they they weigh in late to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So it is that spiritual growth is a most important matter. There may be those who imagine that Christianity is like getting uh, a place upon a train. You get your ticket punched and you take your seat. And so it is that you can arrive at your destination. But it is not so as We've been seeing in this book of 1 Peter, it is a pilgrimage, it is a journey. There is indeed exertion upon all the faculties of the will and the heart and the soul as we strive to advance in the way of spiritual maturity. The Christian, you see, is not in one sense a finished work, this side of heaven. They are not yet what they shall be. Not only are they not what they shall be when they are perfected in glory at the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth, they are not even what they shall be as they advance in their journey. The Lord is at work in you, you see, Christian. He is working in you to make you the kind of child of God he would have you to be. Listen to Dr. John Gill. Every grace as to its act and exercise is capable of growing and increasing. Faith may grow exceedingly. Hope abound. Love increase and patience have its perfect work. And saints may grow more humble, holy, and self-denying. This is indeed God's work to cause them to grow, and it is owing to his grace. Yet saints should show a concern for this and make use of the means which God owns and blesses for this purpose why am I talking about this? Why am I being so careful to define it? For exactly this reason, that you would be concerned about this. To be a Christian, you see, means that you should be concerned that you are not remaining stagnant, that you are not remaining immature in the things of godliness, but that you are advancing, that you are growing in the things of God, how displeasing it would be unto our great king if you should despise his grace so to languish in contentment with how and what you are. No, that is not the way. There must be this spiritual growth. I would, in order to explain this, in order to explain it, I think that the clearest way to proceed is to see The relationship between birth and life. Birth and life. That's clearly in our text, isn't it? As newborn babes. Newborn babes. And it's almost as though we live in a world that is so wondrous that we despise the incredible workings of God that appear even in a little newborn baby. It's a common uh, illustration in the word of God, but I want you to just think about it now. Surely you can remember when your first child was born or someone in, in your family had their newborn child and you held that little baby in your arms. Wasn't it a wondrous thing? There is a human person, complete and whole and entire, body and soul, an image bearer of God. And he has used even sinful men and women to bring about their natural generation, their natural birth. A husband and a wife, they come together and become mother and father to a newborn child. And is it not something that is mysterious. Even the, uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes in chapter 11, verse 5, says this about natural birth. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, or how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Who can explain how all those little bones come into being? How is it that we can account for how a personality comes into existence reflecting the likeness of mom and dad in a way but still being utterly unique more so than any snowflake. An image bearer of God. It may be the greatest of biologists or scientists, but I tell you, even you cannot utterly account for it. You may describe and observe, but you cannot do this, ordain the means of bringing in a human being into the world. And so it is that if this is mysterious, if this is wondrous, what way may we say of the bring about not of natural life, but of spiritual life? A new creature in Jesus Christ. This is the analogy that is before us. As new-born babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. It was the case, wasn't it, that Peter dwelt upon this theme of the new birth in chapter one and. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the chapter begins with that thought, and, and the chapter, as it drew us to a conclusion in verse 23, returns to it. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And sandwiched between these two exhortations to consider the new birth, is it not that he draws out their identity as God's children? In verses 13 and 14, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. I you see contrary to liberal theologians, contrary to cults like the Masons, it is not the case that everyone is a child of God. That sort of teaching of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man as a universalist religion is utterly antithetical to the word of God, you see. Who are the true sons and daughters of God? Who are the true children of God? They are those who have had this mighty work upon their souls. They are born again unto this, a new kind of life. And it's by considering that, the new birth, that you come to see how spiritual growth must be the result. Listen to what Arthur Pink says in his wonderful little book, Spiritual Growth. Quote, At regeneration, we receive divine grace as an indwelling principle. And the effect is to make us willing to deny ourselves take up our cross daily and follow Christ. The proper sequel to such a conversion is that we steadfastly adhere to the surrender we then made of ourselves unto the Lord Jesus and, that, and the more we do so, such will be our spiritual progress. Here it is. It is the sure testimony that we have passed from death to life, that there is growth, that there is advancement. It would be a most unnatural thing, a terrible handicap, something we would say would be so wrong if a little baby would not grow, not not after a week, not after a month, not after a year ever remaining a little baby it would be a terrible thing if just one part of that baby were to grow say the head or the hand or the or the feet or the heart if just one part is growing and something is wrong there's a deformity there's there's a problem there's there's something that's gone amiss so is it also with the christian there ought to be a proportion there ought to be a natural uh, continuity in everything that you are, in your knowledge of the things of God, in your affections and and loves and delights in those things of God, into the putting them into practice in practical obedience unto the commands of God. Everything that it is to be a Christian. In faith, hope, and love, in maturity, in patience, in godliness, it all should be growing. For where there is life, there surely must be growth. You remember what it was that old Nicodemus asked. Of the Lord Jesus when he spoke about this new birth. In John chapter 3. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Oh, poor Nicodemus, come to that old age with gray hairs on his head. He had come to the place where he had reputation, where he had perhaps riches, where he had the esteem of being a religious teacher, but he had not this. He had not that spiritual life. He heard of it and he knew nothing of it. How is it that a man can be born when he is old? Well, that is what is necessary for this spiritual life to exist. Listen to Arthur Pink again. In the strictest sense, spiritual growth consists of the spirit's drawing out what he wrought in the soul when he quickened it. When a babe is born into this world, it is complete in its parts, though not in its development. No, two, no new members can be added Added to its body, nor any additional faculties to its mind. What is that saying? Well, if anything is utterly absent in you that is a mark of a true Christian, if there is not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is not love for the brethren, if there is not a crying out unto the Father, if there is not a mourning and grieving over sin, If there is not a striving after obedience, at least in some measure, then we say that there is not a complete child here. There is not even the beginning of spiritual life. They need not be what they will yet be. They need not be complete, because they will not be this side of glory. But they will be there. And the way of God is that they advance, that they... Grow. You see, when we think about this, why is it that the Christian is not utterly complete, utterly complete and perfect? Upon his or her conversion. Why is it that they are not saved to where they never sin anymore? They never doubt again. They never engage in a bickering word or a malicious thought towards their brothers. Why is it they fall into sin after sin? Well, it is because there is a war here. A war here between the principle you received at your natural conception and birth. And the principle that you've received through your supernatural birth. The Lord Jesus, uh, or rather the Apostle Paul, who is a servant of the Lord Jesus, spoke about this in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusteth after the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do The things that ye would. There must be a war. There must be a conflict. If there is an utter peace and tranquility, if there is no conflict within against the warrings of the flesh, of your sin nature, then you must worry. If you go through the day and there is never the battling of temptations, there is never the subduing of ungodly attitudes and words and actions. And can I I imagine that you know anything of this? Could it be that you have so deceived yourself That there is no battle because you are utterly won over to the other side. There is no battle because there is no spiritual life. There is no warring against the flesh. But where there is life, where there is this new birth, there will be the maturing in grace and the war against the flesh. Here is how I've sought to describe him. I hope that you've seen this is important. This is something you ought to consider. This is something that the Lord Jesus Christ would have you fix yourself upon in this earthly pilgrimage that you mature and grow in grace. Well, thus far we've seen the description, but now we come to the central command of this verse, and that is that we desire it. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Desire. It speaks of an earnest yearning, of a longing, of a desire for that which is held forth in this verse. Yes, the sincere milk of the word, which we will look at particularly in the afternoon service, but really that as a means to an end for the growth itself which comes by means of this uh, instrument of grace, the word of God. It ought to be the case that you, Christian, desire this. And even if you do not name the name of Christ this morning, even if you are not a Christian, still the word goes out, desire. Desire. Desire this. Oh, maybe I hear one say, well, if I am unconverted, if I do not confess Christ, if I am someone who is without this supernatural birth, then I can ignore this command utterly. I do not have to desire because I am not a newborn bee. I am not a Christian. Oh, I tell you, I tell you that do not imagine that you can escape the responsibility of this text merely by multiplying your sins. Yes, it is a terrible thing to be unconverted, to be without faith in Christ, to never repent from your sin. But still, you are responsible to desire these things. Oh, you say, I cannot desire it, for I have no spiritual life. And yet you are responsible for desiring it. Do you imagine that God is unjust to tell even you that you must desire that which the Lord Jesus proffers and offers in his gospel? Do not ascribe injustice unto God. He in his mercy and love comes unto you and says, if you would but desire, you may have. If you would but knock, the door shall be opened. If you would apply unto the blessed Mediator." Should he not give you all that you need, oh if you do not, de- do not if you do not desire it, may I lower the bar even further? Do you desire the desire? Do you desire the yearning? then cry out for it, then plead for it, find that he will awaken in you such a desire. Well, how is it that this can be so? How is it that we can desire this? Well, May I suggest that if even a confessing Christian today does not find a desire for spiritual growth, it is because your conscience, your conscience must be awakened to it. Consider these sins, black as they are before us, malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil, Speakings. Consider what it was for those disciples who desire themselves to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Consider that haughty, prideful spirit. Can you not find any trace of it in you? You know, it's not the measure of your Christianity, how you behave to those who you find it easy to get along with. Isn't that what Jesus said? How are you any different from the publicans, from those criminals, if you simply love and bless those who love you in return? No, even your enemies, even those who would curse you, your Christianity is borne out by even that, how you are to behave towards them. And so it is. It's with those that get under your skin. It's with those who you actually have a grievance with. It's there. It's there that the truth of your Christianity is borne out. And who, one of, who among us have not lost our tempers? Who among us have not spoken an unguarded word? Who among us has not brought reproach on the name of Christ? Oh, it is to be greatly lamented when we would spend time in prayer and we cannot even name the sins that we have transgressed because our consciences are so unattuned to the ways of God. Take God's laws, take his commandments, take the pattern that Christ has set for us and use it in order to set before you God's character and to see your sins as in a mirror that you may mourn and bewail him. Listen to what this man, S.F. Pierce, whom I read this week, had to say. Spiritual growth is a mystery and is more evident in some than in others the more the Holy Spirit shines upon the mind and puts forth his life-giving influences in the heart, so much the more sin is seen, felt, and loathed as the greatest of all evils. And this is an evidence of spiritual growth, namely to hate sin as sin and to abhor it on account of its contrariety to the nature of God the quick perception and insight which we have of inherent sin and our feeling of it so as to look on ourselves as most vile, to renounce ourselves of all that we can do for ourselves and to look wholly and immediately to Christ for relief and to strength our growth and grace and a most certain evidence of it. End quote. Is that not what all of us should desire, to hate sin as sin, and to loathe it wherever it appears in ourselves. I read this week about a minister who went to go visit a widow in a in a countryside town who was a member of his church, and he asked the question about what she understood about growing in grace. Growing in grace. And while the woman answered in an interesting way, she said, a Christian's growth in grace is like the growth of a cow's tail. A cow's tail. Well, what did she mean by that? He was puzzled. But then she said, well, you see, the more the cow's tail grows, the nearer it comes to the ground. And the more a Christian grows in grace, the more does he take his place in the dust before God. So it is. You might be able to get a straight A on a theology exam. You might be able to memorize our catechism. You might be able to be able to understand the Bible forwards and back. But if it does not come home to your soul in this way, like compared to the greatness of God and compared to the mercies of Christ, you come to loathe your sins more and more and to treasure and cleave to him all the more than There is not true growth and grace. And do you not see that it is that which adorns Christianity in its beauty? You know, maybe you've had this experience. You've gone to worship in a church that's not a reformed church. And you meet with some of the Christians there. and, And maybe some things about the worship. You say, oh, that doesn't seem exactly right. Maybe some of the doctrines, yeah, that isn't exactly how I would put it. But you speak to them, and there is such a love for the things of the Lord. They treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. They love one another as he has taught them. That is what we should be yearning for. Yes, we can very easily say with the Apostle Paul, Every one of us I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7 Verse 18, the good that we desire to do, we do not do. And yet we can also resonate, if we are true Christians, with what the apostle also writes in that same book, chapter 15, verse 14 in Romans. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also, to admonish one another. You see, where we are not what we should be, yet we are also not what we once were. If there is any inkling in you this day that these things are vital, these are important, treasure that. Treasure that. Stay there. Desire more and more to be filled with his grace. Desire more and more to know of his goodness. Seek his help. Attend to this matter. Desire and yearn for his maturing grace in your life. And he will not put this to shame. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is mean, because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. There is what we should Be thanking God for, if we see it in any measure, that there is greater love among us, greater manifestations of our faith in Christ, greater unity in the things of the Lord. Do you desire this? Amen.